You're listening to the Deadly Uncle Podcast. A safe space for Deadly Uncle Conversations. All right. We're so lucky today to have Mr. Kirby Redwood on the Deadly Uncle Podcast today. What a blessing. Yes, Kirby is not only my first cousin, but he is Soto Cree from Kaosis First Nation, and he has called Mokinsis, or Calgary, home for 45 years. Kirby is has been working in the social services sector for over 30 years, and he's a leader in the sector. He's got a Bachelor of Arts in Criminal Justice, a Master of Arts, and he also has an MBA. So without further ado, we're going to take you to Kirby Redwood. Um, well, I um, I grew up in uh, on reserve. Obviously, the first six years of my life on Kauzas Reserve uh, in the Fort Coppell area, just east of Regina, about an hour till I was about six years old. And then, uh, as I'm told, um, my mother packed us all up from the res when I was six. My brother was five, and my sister was seven, and and moved us to. Regina first for a quick little stint and then off to the city of Calgary and uh, yeah I mean we were we were it was you know just like many other indigenous families we had our our struggles and our challenges and there's you know a lot of domestic violence and uh, alcohol abuse in our family so we were kind of running away from some of that and you know ended up in in Calgary here which I now understand to be Mokinsis our Treaty 7 Blackfoot brothers and sisters and so that was kind of my my introduction into into the city a res kid coming to the city I, I remember the first thing I seen in the city of Calgary was these these statues that are downtown Calgary and it's these tall tall statues of people you know right around this the um um Bow Valley College here and that was the first thing I seen because I was woke waking up as a young kid looking and and this is what I seen and you know I remember just being scared <laughs> and thinking <laughs> where where the heck are we these long big buildings and these tall lanky statues of people it was a it was a you know a scary time for a young boy off the res and as he'd imagine you know it was a tough transition um, but I've been in Mokinsis now for for well I'm 56 right so for 50 years and uh so it's been my home i grew up in that in that that area and you know learned a lot about the blackfoot culture because that's where i grew up and 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 that's my introduction into my culture didn't come from you know my family like most people it kind of came from the the community environment that i was in and back then the the calgary friendships and indian friendship center was a big part of that and so you know going to the cultural camps with with uh, the friendship center and and being connected to you know people like Rufus Goodstriker was kind of my first introduction into culture into ceremony, and so so yeah from that it just kind of uh, you know junior high high school all, and college all around the city of Calgary so not sure where you want me to go from there from there no no that's amazing like um so it came into your life you say like uh the culture came into your life aspect um around junior high um what what led you there were you just looking for programs as an indigenous uh, young indigenous man what what led you to to these programs no that's a really good question and and yeah it was early actually elementary where i first got introduced to the culture and then 
and then from there it was it was you know as a young indigenous man in 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 calgary here was uh it was a tough transition um so i kind of i kind of uh veered away from the culture for a while and 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 found some solace in in other relationships with other people and 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 that was surrounded by you know alcohol and drugs and and so you know that's where i was kind of at for quite some time and and it it really wasn't until um you know, I was in in my twelfth year at at at, uh, at high school, and I remember uh, my having you know I was living on my own already at that time, and I had a strong relationship with my principal, and he was kind of really instrumental in you know. And here's this you know this this white man who who was connecting with this in, indigenous man who was searching for himself at that time, you know, and it, and I was involved in drugs and alcohol at that time. I was even involved in selling drugs at that time. And, and my principal, he, he was straight up with me. He says, I, he goes, I know you're selling drugs. And you, and you got to start making some different choices because if you don't, you're going to go down this one path. Right. And, and he connected me, him and my mom connected to me to, with this place called the Burns Memorial Foundation because I was really struggling to just feed myself and to pay my rent and the Burns Memorial Foundation uh, was was kind of the one of those doorways that that okay there's there's other opportunities here and so I stepped into them and they kind of supported me with with some of those basic needs and then that kind of opened up the door to some other areas and I and I just started working you know I graduated from high school um, and and just went into the auto body industry and started working uh, but I you know I was getting uh, I was, you know, I knew that I couldn't do auto body. I didn't want to do auto body. I did iron work. I did sheet metal work, you know, a lot of uh, hard labor things, but I didn't have a good back for it. So I, you know, I don't, I think it was kind of a blessing that I got hurt. I got (laughs) doing, doing steel. Like it's like my back isn't built for this. I gotta, I gotta go back to school. And so that's what I did. I went back to school and uh, went into criminology corrections thinking, oh, I want to be a cop. I'm going to be a corrections officer, had a stint at CYOC working with the youth there. And that's where I really connected, you know, started to find my calling because I went in there as a, as a CEO, right? And as a CEO, you're a guard and you're responsible for, you know, they called us key turners, right? Because that's all you did. You had masses of kids, you know, in different units, you know, 25, 30, 30 or more kids in one unit. So all, all you were supposed to do was police them. And... I couldn't do that. I, I, you know, I got into that room and I was drawn to these kids and these kids were drawn to me. And I remember just sitting, being surrounded by kids, having conversations about their, their situation, their life and who I was. And, and I remember being pulled into the, you know, to my, my uh, supervisor's office on numerous occasions saying, Kirby, you're not there to build relationships with these kids. You're there to police them and ensure safety, right? <laughs> ensure ensure order right of, of the units and 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 i said yeah 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 i understand that but still being drawn into those relationships was something that i couldn't 
I couldn't veer away from. So we eventually they stuck me on night shift where all I, everyone was locked in <laughs> lockdown, right? So all I was doing was walking around and, and it was, it was fine. I mean, I loved the money. It was great money back then, but I knew it was those relationships. And so I ended up, I remember my mom gave me a call and said, um, I work at a group home, an indigenous group home. We've got six indigenous boys here, teenagers, and all the women are, are all the women are, are all the work Workers are women. We need males around here. And it's like I said, I know nothing about working with these kids. And they said, you're male, you're indigenous. That's your qualifications. Come on, we'll give you a job. And so, <laughs> so they did. They gave me a job. And and having no experience, no nothing with these, you know, vulnerable youth. Um, the, I remember going in my first day and they said, we've got this one young fella. And he, and he has these violent outbursts and as women we feel unsafe we don't know what to do with him and and we said we're going to need your help and it's like I, I said to them it's like well I don't know nothing about working with these young youth and he says well you're male you're indigenous that's all and that's all we need right now that's the criteria back then the criteria for hiring was a little different nowadays they want <laughs> they want education they want training they criminal want record checks criminal <laughs> record checks right all of these things right anyways so I remember my first shift I go in there and all of a sudden I hear this loud banging and yelling and swearing and i'm thinking what the hell's going on here my first shift right and the supervisor lady comes up to me and she goes well it's go time <laughs> let's see what you got right? <laughs> so, so they threw me into the fire right I, I remember going into this room and this young fellow was just punching holes in the wall and smashing furniture and i remember going in there and just closing the door and all i did was sit down on the bed and I didn't do nothing. I didn't say nothing. I just sat down on the bed. And, and it was probably, I kid you not, probably less than two minutes. And that young man was sitting down beside me. And so, you know, it, 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 it taught me a lesson real quick that, um, you know, it's not about judging or controlling people. When, 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 when we're working with vulnerable people, it, it's about creating safe places. It's about building trust and building relationships. And and I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but that's what I was doing. And it came natural. And I think it comes natural to our people that that's a, a natural way of connecting with each other, connecting with our spirit, connecting with, with our culture and our language and our land and Mother Earth. It's, it's you know, the Cree say Wakoto and the Blackfoot say Simoks and, and it's about living in relationships. And I didn't know that's what I was doing at that time, but now when I reflect back on it, you know, that's what I was doing. You know, I was, you know, I wasn't there to judge this young man. I was just there to be with him. And, and when he was ready, you know, we could have a conversation and we can talk about different ways of managing some of these emotions that come up with within us. And so that was my introduction into this into this system of human services, of social services, of of, uh, you know, utilizing indigenous approaches to, to working with vulnerable populations. That, so I walked alongside them and because I was going through my own trauma, I had my own issues. I had a lot of issues, you know, you know, with with addictions, with intergenerational trauma, with systemic racism, with, you know, with, uh, you know, the the addictions and, and 
the the abuse that I watched and and seen and was exposed to on the reserve. You know, I, I'm sitting here with my two cousins here, my two brothers, and and they probably you guys don't know my story. You know, and and because we we haven't had those conversations. Yeah, you true. Know. I don't I know, know your. Yeah, you might know some of it, but you yeah, don't know not the whole thing, man. No, you you know we know pieces of it that were shared to us by by our you know by our parents, by our yeah. uncles and aunties. But those are just perspectives. You yeah. know, there there's perspectives that our own perspective that's that's different, right? Yeah. We, yeah. Nobody knows the impact that. That you know the uh, the alcohol abuse or or the the sexual abuse that we we're exposed to had we don't know the impact that it had on us you know yeah, and yeah. and so so you know your guys are going to hear some of this for the first time you know mm-hmm. did did I go to residential school no um, my my older sister did for one year but did it residential school have an impact on me absolutely it did you know and 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 one of the ways it did was um my older cousins went to the schools and they were abused and so they when when they come back from the schools you know what would they do well yeah. some of that abuse was carried into our homes through them and and yeah. so that that's what happened to to me and my brother and and even my, me and my brother haven't talked about this directly, but I, you know, I still have those visuals in my head of the sexual abuse or have seen sexual abuse, ob- observing sexual abuse happen. And, and so it had a long-term impact on me. And so, you know, working in this field was, was not only, um, you know, something that came natural to me, it was something that I needed for my own healing journey. So I remember them saying to me in that group home, okay, you got to teach them about your culture. And it's like, I don't know shit about my culture, you know, you know? And and so it was like, we were exploring that together that whole time. And so that was like 1988. I remember that because it was the Olympics in Calgary here. And so I'm taking all of these little Brown boys to all these different, uh, you know, Olympic events because people are donating uh, tickets to us. And, and, and then from there we're exploring, you know, in Calgary here, we had Plains Indian Cultural Survival School, which we called PICS. And that was kind of that was kind of like our cultural um, one of our cultural streams of access, along with the Friendship Center. But the Friendship Center came in and went over the years because of some of those their own struggles. But, you know, we, we connected to our culture that way. You know, so we started going to to cultural camps and sweat lodges. I remember Lloyd Ewan, the old man Ewan was one of the one of the men that, you know, conducted sweat lodges for us. And, you know, it was a time where it was like, oh, cool. This is cool. I like the culture, you know, love the singing and the drumming and the songs and sitting in the lodge. And, but then I was back then I was, Oh, I'd have to count the days. Well, when was the last time I had a drink? You know, uh, I got to be clean for four days. And then I remember sitting in the lodge with Lloyd and, 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 you know, the boys, and then, you know, going out the night after or the night, you know, a couple of days after back in the bars, you know, drinking and, and, and partying. Right. That was, that was my life. I, I wasn't really con- connected in a way where, where it was, you know, was a, a significant part of my life. I was still, still struggling and exploring, you know, other, other ways of trying to 
you know, deal with the trauma, you know, deal with the anxiety that I had. I mean, I had a lot of anxiety, you know, but I, people never knew because I, I, apparently I was good at hiding it. Mm. You know, I was, you know, my mind is racing inside, you know, about, you know, how inadequate I am as a, as a man, um, how stupid I am compared to everybody else going to college, you know, taking that first diploma in criminology corrections. I remember throwing up before class because I was so anxious about going into that classroom. I remember sitting by the door because I needed a quick way out, you know, and that's, that's anxiety, right? That's, you know, uh, you know, mental health and wellness, you know, struggles for somebody who's, you know, dealing with trauma. And so, you know, I can go so many different places with my story. Like, you know, I searched for help, right? I knew I was sick. I knew I needed help. I, I remember doing EMDR with, with clinicians. Um, and I, but I remember that this tipping point for me was, um, you know, my dad and I had reconnected. My dad got out of Drumheller Penitentiary um, and, and quit drinking. And then we became friends. You know, when I was 19, um, 2021, 20, my dad and I became pretty good friends. You know, it wasn't like a normal father-son relationship. It was like, you know, it was we were men, right? And we were coming together for the first time. He missed our childhood. He didn't see us growing up. Um, so he wasn't a dad in that regard. But you know, I th some, to somewhere along the road, I think I was starting to reconcile that, you know, there was so much dysfunction in our family that, you know, hate, anger, um, guilt or blame weren't going to serve me well. And, yeah. and, and I needed to let go of some of that. And, and so I honestly at around 13 I, 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 know my, I know that because my mom really struggled with that. That's when my mom and I kind of, you know, s you know, separated a little bit, you know, emotionally. Because I came to this point of forgiveness for my father, even though I have visuals of him beating the shit up of my mother. And as a, you know, four, five, six-year-old trying to stop my dad from beating up on my mom and being thrown aside, me and my brother, that's what would happen. You know, even though I seen that, I got to a point where I, I was able to forgive him. So when he, when he, when he was in Drum Heller his last time, you know, we we said, let's go visit this old guy because he's not going to live much longer. And so that was easy to go there and see my dad in Drum Heller. But I guess for my dad, he shared with me later. He says, "I'm sitting in behind, you know, I'm sitting in the Drum Heller pen and behind these fence, this fence." And he goes, and I see my family come walking up because my mom, my brother, my sister, we all went together. But we went, you know, we were all adults, right? So here's my dad looking at his whole family. Where in his head, he's probably we're probably still all little kids, but yeah. we're not anymore, right? And he said that was a turning point for him, and that and he made his decision there that you know alcohol was no longer going to be a part of his life, and because of that choice he made we became a part of his life at that age, you know, so at yeah. 19 years old, we got, we had my, I had my dad back. And, and so, but my, the turning point was, and I share that story because my dad was part of a turning point, ironically, right? Because he, uh, 
you know, I, I, got, I went through this uh, depression stage where I couldn't eat, I couldn't think, everything was such a, a chore. And, you know, I literally, I think I got down to about 135 pounds. I was just skin and bones, forcing myself to eat. And, and my dad said, we need to go see a medicine man. And, and he says, that's it, we're going. And it's like, whatever, I'll try anything. I said, because I, 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 was, I was doing everything I could to try and, you know, get help year but nothing was working so we went and seen he's we got into a you know into a vehicle and we just started driving and we drove for hours and hours and we ended up in this place called uh, I think it's called Mission Lake in northern Saskatchewan northeastern Saskatchewan way the hell up there it took forever to get there I think 15 hours or something <laughs> during the winter right and, <laughs> and we we get there and and I don't know these Indians, right? And and they and all of a sudden we're in this community hall. Little I know now what it was, but back then I didn't know. We were entering into a, a night lodge. This was a night lodge ceremony. And and for those of you that might not know what a night lodge ceremony, it's it's just that, right? You're doing it in the pitch dark. And and so we go into this community hall and these guys are nailing the window shut. They're, they're nailing the door shut and I'm wondering what the heck is going on here I'm starting to kind, kind of panic and get a little claustrophobic you're like dad where the hell did you bring me yeah yeah and, and so we're all sitting in circle and I see this old man and he's surrounded by his boys and a lot of you know, drums and rattles and all sorts of medicines there, right? And and we're all sitting in circle. I still don't know what's going on, right? I know we're in ceremony. I know there's an elder up there and he's going to conduct a ceremony. And then they say, okay, well, the lights are going to go off and they're going to, and, and the grandfathers are going to come in. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, okay, what? I still don't know what's going on, right? But anyway, <laughs> I'll never forget it because it was a turning point for me. And, and the lights went off and almost immediately that that power switch went off, these rattles kicked in and they scared the shit out of me because it was like they were right there in my face. These rattles were just shaking and, and then songs were being sung. And then all of a sudden there's this, you know, I can only describe it as, as, a, as a being that was dancing because there's about 60 of us in this room, right? A big circle. And the old man was way over there in the corner, but the lights went off and the rattle started and then this being is dancing and 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 I and it's massive because you could feel the ground just shaking and vibrating, and and I'm still you know in fear, right? Trying to figure out what the hell's going on here, and and then this I could this grandfather starts speaking to people, and 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 he's speaking to people in a language that I don't understand, but it was Cree, obviously, um, and then and then that grandfather comes to you see it's right in front of me and i can feel it and it just you know it's complete darkness right so you don't see nothing you're just your other senses are kicking in and, and you're just trying to you know not only figure out what's going on but you're kind of like in in safety and protective mode and you're and and you're i don't know if i had my fists up right <laughs> gonna fight the spirits right but you know you, you just don't know and, and i remember as soon as that's that grandfather got in front of me, it was, it was, I don't know how to describe it. It was just kind of grounding. And, and I remember I just kind of 
you know, gave into it and, and, and released. And, and, you know, I, and I knew I was getting blessed. I didn't understand the language that was being spoke to me, but I could, I could feel the language and, and I could, I could tell that this grandfather was, was acknowledging me and was blessing me. And then there was this physical connection. And, and this, this hand went over my, my head like this, that the, the, the palm of the hand was touching my forehead and those fingers were at the bottom of my neck. And, and it was kind of a, a freaky, eerie feeling to think about how big that hand must have been to be able to do that. But it was also a blessing. And, mm. and, and then, you know, that, so that ceremony went on for several hours. And, and then after that, you know, we sat around and we had a feast. And, and the old lady, I could see her doing some things. With, and she was making medicine pouches. And then, and, and then you know, a stump, you know, some she says, come here. And she, she, she gave me that medicine pouch. And, you know, that was it. You know, that was my connection to this old man um, and this old lady called Albert and Mary O'Daniel. And, and so they, they, you know, I, I say this to this day, you know, they saved me. And because uh, I don't know what would have happened, right? I was in that, I was lost in that mental health and depression and anxiety. And, and it's not to say that it all went away. But there is this, there is this, you know, mechanism for lack of a better word. It was my culture, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what's that's what saved me to this day. I believe, you know, and and now they adopted me, you know, years a few years after that because I would I would keep on going because I wanted more, right? And and you know, so so it was. Albert Daniel, you know, my Muslim that adopted me, you know, when I was a young man and took me in and, you know, gave me so many teachings and, and, and you know, treated, you know, me with, it, with so much kindness. And, and you, know, you know, kindness is, you know, from an Indigenous perspective, when you're immersed in culture and ceremony, is different than how we understand kindness from a Western worldview, and 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 so it, it's different, right? You think kind of, uh, oh, we come here, my boy. You know, let me take care of you. Here's some, you know. It's not always like that. Sometimes it comes with a slap, you know, and and and, <laughs> and not necessarily a physical slap, but yeah. but but like a strong, you know, you know. This is this is culture. We've got protocol. You know, we've yeah. got we got ways of knowing and being that have been around for, for millennium and you need to respect them and you need to, you know, you need to walk in that way. And so, you know, it came with that. I remember, you know, some of the teachings they would do. I can look back and laugh at them now and we're, we're it's time. We're time to go. We're going to start the lodge. He says, you take that sled and head down to the lake and go pick some grandfathers. I head down to the lake and, and there's four feet of snow. I'm in northern Saskatchewan, right? Down at the lake, there's four feet of snow. I dig through the snow through the bottom and I see the grandfathers. Well, they're all iced in, packed in ice. And so two hours later, they come and check on me and I got two grandfathers, right? And we need we need 60 for the lodge, right? And they're just, they're just playing with me. They're just, they're, you know, they're just, they're just, uh, there's some lessons there, um, some teachings there. Um, obviously, humility is one of them. But, you know, it was, you know, despite that, that was, you know, 
you know, I knew it was where I belonged. And, and mm. so that, that was, you know, so now as an organized, you know, as a leader of an indigenous organization, you know, I tell people, we have no clue the impact that we're going to have on somebody when we light the smudge. You know, we have no clue the impact we're going to have on somebody when they come and sit in ceremony with us for the very first time. You know, we don't know, have no clue the impact that the smell of our medicines in the air, when they open that door to our organization, that they smell the sweet grass, they smell the sage and the, and the stone medicine. We have no clue the impact that's going to have on them. But what we do know is that it can be amazing. And, and so I've been privileged and with my life and given the opportunity to, to work in an organization where when I look at my, my personal values today as a, you know, a 56 year old man, uh, as a 56 year old Escapios, it aligns so well with my organization. And I call it my organization because I, I, you know, I am, you know, a founder and, and, and of that, but you know, now I've, I've moved to an employee and, and it was an easy transition because it doesn't matter. Ownership means nothing when it comes to our indigenous ways of knowing and being and leading. And so it was, it was, people always say, well, what's that tough letting go of ownership? And it's like, no, because, because, we don't own our culture, you know. Our culture is is a gift from Creator, from Natawima, and and so you know, you know, even when we create cultural tools of understanding, or you know, you can't copyright that. Yeah, you know, it's it's completely inappropriate, right? But the Westerners want to say, well, okay, well, we need to copyright that and protect that and make sure nobody. How can else. we own it? <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> oh, that's my half brain was thinking <laughs> that. You know, well, yeah, and that's you know that's something you know I re- I appreciate you saying that because that's something to acknowledge and recognize because because even though I've had this journey. And I and I and you know I light my smudge here before we started talking and 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 I ground myself into this conversation. My default system is Western thinking because I grew up in the city. I was I was educated in mainstream society, uh, you know, in, in regular school system, uh, post secondary and graduate. My my default is Western, and so my challenge is to think or try to think indigenous mm-hmm. and, and and so even though i know the songs of our ceremonies and, and i'm learning the language uh you know my you know my mushroom always said <laughs> i won't tell you exactly what he said because he used to swear at me a lot <laughs> <laughs> you stupid bugger he'd say you still don't get it but i remember saying to him oh mushroom i got my master's degree in in leadership and he goes, that's good news, though. That's good. He says, he says, Sustam, come here. And, and he was standing by the window in his, in his house in Isla Cross. And he points out and he goes, that's my, that's my, that's my university. He says, that's my hospital. That's my courts. And he's pointing at the sweat lodge, eh? He's saying, you know, that's where we heal people. That's where we educate people. He goes, it's good you're learning the white man's ways, but don't forget that there's this other way. 
and you need to try and walk with both pieces. Mm, yeah. And so that's what I've been trying to do ever since. And and it's it's tough, it's difficult because you know, as a as a as a CEO of a of a not for profit organization, you know, we've got we've got a about 75 staff uh you know we're we, you know we're an eight million dollar organization we why don't you tell us the name of your organization <laughs> sure sure Muscanoa is the name of our organization and and originally it was pathways and uh we got to the point where the elders said okay you need your cree name and your cree name is Muscanoa, and, and Muscanoa translates increase to many little roads or pathways mm. and, and and that name is symbolic in regards to you know each of our journeys as staff and as people that come into our circles everybody has their own journey you know to to well-being to life to healing and wellness and and it's not for for Kirby or Moscano or anybody else to decide, you know, all we, all we can do as a Scopios is to, you know, Muscamaso, let people discover for themselves what that is. All we do is invite them in ceremony. We create opportunities of connection and of understanding where, where, where people can come together and feast and, and, and sit in ceremony and build relatives you know, Wakoto and building relatives and let them discover for themselves what that means. That's all we do as an organization. We offer and we invite, you know, you you can't, you know, the Western systems, a lot of them are very prescriptive. They're very paternalistic. They're very hierarchical, you know, ours is not, you know, we worked in some of those systems and still do sometimes. And it's tough for us to function there because there's, there's such a, a, a misalignment in in how we think and what we want to do, how we want to work with and support our vulnerable families, right? It's yeah. but we need to be there because we need to. We if we're going to create any sort of change, any mm. sort of systems change, whether it be within our educational systems, our healthcare systems, our ju- justice systems, and our child welfare systems, we got to walk alongside them even though we might be at opposite ends of understanding in what our children and families need, um, we still got to walk with that journey with them because that's where our families are. You know, it doesn't matter what system you look at, you know, that there's, you know, people, I've been guilty of saying this too, that there's an over-representation of Indigenous people within the justice system, within the child welfare system, you know, and, and an elder corrected me not too long ago. And I just love what he said. He says, you need to reframe that. He says, there's not an overrepresentation of Indigenous people in jails or even the child, children in child welfare. There's an overrepresentation of Western worldviews world imposed on Indigenous peoples. And, and when he said that, you know, that just resonated with me so much because what it does is that it, it allows us to kind of let go of some of that anger some of that resentment, some of that blame, and to create space for how we might move forward differently, how we might move forward together. And I know a lot of people might not agree with that, and that's okay. You know, that's just where I am on my own healing journey. You know, when it comes to child welfare, you know, I've I've blamed them and pointed the finger at them as to why there's so many Indigenous children in care. And and the reality is they're just doing what they know. 
You know, yeah. what, what do they know? They know the yeah. Indian Act. They know, you know, the, you know, their child welfare system, right? And it's been functioning the same way for so many years. And so, you know, if you're a government worker, you've got legislation and policy that you need to adhere to. So you're actually kind of handcuffed. Yeah. This is, you know, this is how, that's why they need us. Well, how much has it really changed? Like you've been involved with the child welfare system since 1988. And like, you're the reason my parents got involved as foster parents too. So, I mean, like you guys have seen this for a long time. Like, has there been changes, positive changes for like indigenous children in foster care in your time working in the system? Have you seen it or? It's, that's a really good question, Trent. And, 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 you know, part of the answer to that is, how you know how do you define change you know and and so if if you're if you're wanting to define change from a systems perspective in in systems reform or transformation well you could argue all day long that nothing has changed you know but if you if you if you choose to define change from a person's perspective from an individual's perspective uh, you know, from a Muskanawa's perspective, you know, I would say that a lot has changed. You know, yeah. and and so if you you know, and and you need to think when you're looking at government too. You need to you need to look at the systems within the system. So within government child welfare, they have an intervention system, and 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 their focus is on safety. And 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 so if they see a a child at risk in a home because of alcohol or because of domestic violence or because of poverty, they think the solution is remove the family, right? That's been the typical mindset and practice. Muskanoa comes in and says, no, that's not the way to do it. You know, if, if there's no food in that fridge, well, let's put some food in that fridge. Well, yeah. if, if mm-hmm. dad's, if dad's, you know, creating domestic violence in there, well, let's remove dad and help dad address that or let's apprehend the family that's what they're doing at our reserve you know with 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 chief red bear lodges they've got they apprehend the whole family you know you talk about systems reform there's zero children in care on Cows's first nation you know and 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 that's because of chief red bear lodge if there's a safety issue they apprehend the whole family you come into chief red bear lodge and you're here for 90 days and you're going to address the addictions we're going to address the domestic violence we're going to address whatever and you're going to get supported by the cookums and the mushrooms and by that the the culture and the ceremony and the community zero children in care you know that's amazing. And that's happening, I think, with a lot more nations. They're taking control of their child welfare systems, right? So hopefully that's a positive change that we can see, you know, in yep. the future, right? Like yep. we're seeing it on Calisys right now. If other nations move forward like that, hopefully it'll change the way things are, are dealt with. Yeah. And, 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 and so systems change, systemic change is going to be slow, right? Here's, here's Kauza's First Nation. It's a great story, right? You got, you got Bill C-92 comes in and they create their Meopimatissoan Act, which is legislation on their, on their reserve now. So it doesn't matter what chief and council, what the politics are, this is legislation and it's there to stay. And that'll help them guide how they manage 
the safety of all of their band members, whether they're rural or urban. So you see them now moving into areas like Calgary and, and starting to build relations and try to figure out how do they support their band members that are living off reserve. Because just like any other reserve, um, you know, there's only a fraction of their band members that are actually living on the reserve. Yeah. And for, for many of us, our goal isn't to go back to our reserve. Yeah. Our goal is just to live healthy within our own communities, right? Yeah. So so there's some systems change that's that's slow and incremental, but that Bill C ninety two I think is is gonna is gonna is one of those pieces of legislation that'll really, you know, guide, you know, First Nations communities in taking control of you know the the future of their children and what happens to them when that's at risk. So so that's the kind of change that's that's starting to happen, Trent. But yeah. I think more on the individual change. You know, you're having you're there's more stories like mine. You know, and and so that's you know that change. We don't need government to change for us to change, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and and so we gotta. We I feel like if we're able to make that acknowledge that and step into that and own it then I think the healing can start because I'm not going to heal because of truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to heal because of my own choices in, in, in how I acknowledge my own trauma and how I move forward through that trauma. And it's not like trauma is going to completely disappear. I'm just, I'm just going to learn how to, how to deal with it, how to acknowledge it and how to live with it. You know, trauma never goes away. And, and, you know, I'll share a story with you guys that's really heavy for me. Um, but I'll share it with you because I know it's going to serve me in, in, in dealing with that, that ongoing trauma. Because of the sexual abuse that I was exposed to as a young, young boy and because of the sexual abuse I seen as a young boy, um, it had an impact on me, right? And, and, and I remember when... I became a dad. I mean, proudest moment, right? Looking at my little girl, you know. But all of a sudden it hit. You know, I'm responsible for this little one. It's, you know, I'm the primary caregiver. I need to protect her and keep her safe. And in my mind, it's like all those things that happened to me, that's not going to happen to my little girl. Nobody's going to touch my little girl. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect her and keep her safe. And, you know, so that's the way I was thinking. But then, you know, the trauma creeps in. That, you know, that, that trauma that you're exposed to, it rears its ugly head. And, and, and we don't often understand how it's going to rear its head. But it reared its, its head with me in, in my dreams. And I would have nightmares. And these nightmares that I would have... And I haven't told anybody about these nightmares except my wife. And so you guys are hearing it and I'm sharing it for the first time, you know, openly. I would have nightmares that I was, I would have nightmares that I was sexually abusing my daughter. And, you know, I thought, you know, I've said that a few times and I thought I was, you know, I am moving through this and, and forward with this, but it's still heavy. You see how heavy yeah. it is, right? Mm. That trauma, it doesn't go away. You just learn to live with it. But I, those, those nightmares were so real. I'd wake up in cold sweats. 
and I'd go run to my girl's room and make sure she was okay. But that's intergenerational trauma. That's trauma, right? And 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 so, you know, our our culture plays a role in helping us navigate that and helping us manage it in a way that that's both spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical. And and so that's that's the value of our, our of our of our culture. And that's why I'm a strong advocate for our culture. That's why every you know people you know they say you're you know they call me the ceo of an organization but i don't actually like that title i i refer to myself as the lead escapios and 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 escapios as many of you know is is the helper of elders the helper of ceremonies and so that's what muskanoa is right it's 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 this it's a muskanoa is a mushroom you know it has Ushpagan. It, ha- it has its own traditional songs. And, and so, you know, I'm a helper of that. I'm a leadoscopios of that. And so, you know, tomorrow morning I'm going in, in, in the lodge like I do every Friday because as a leadoscopios of Indigenous organization, you know, that's important. You know, people say, oh, you get to sit in a sweat lodge every Friday. Oh, that sounds like a vacation and a holiday. And, and, and for me at this stage of my life, it kind of is. But I've mm. earned, I've earned that, and 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 that's an important part of who I am as a as a, as a man, and and it's I think it's important for somebody who's leading an indigenous organization to kind of walk that way of life. It doesn't mean that I'm some sort of saint or anything. I'm still a man. I stay still say stupid shit. You're extra holy, bro. <laughs> I still I still fall on my face and and make mistakes and but but I I'm, I'm able to find ways to find correction and and, and guidance and and so you know uh, I, I love the I love the life that I have now. It's it's not easy, you know. I have a a partner, a life partner upstairs, and we still have our squabbles and our differences, you know, because we're human, right? Mm-hmm. We you know we make mistakes, but but the culture is something that that still grounds me. You know, it's it serves so many purposes for me in my life, and it's and like I said, it saved me, and 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 it's. You know, so tomorrow when I sit in the lodge, you know, I'll think about my girl and, and, and I'll think about my nightmares, which I haven't had in years. But it's still it's, you know, when I still say that word, you know, and acknowledge those those nightmares, it's still heavy. Right. Because that's how important that little one is to me, who's now 27 years old. And, and yeah, and, but I think yeah. it's important that you shared that, like to show, you know, not only vulnerability, but that you have struggled with mental health as I have, Mm, you know, I struggle with anxiety and depression and that's what we want to talk about openly with people and let men know that it's okay to talk about these things. You know, yeah, yeah, that's like, thank you so much Kirby for sharing your, your, uh, you know, your story, your testimony here, because I think a lot of men can, um, you know, find answers through your stories and, that's why we created this podcast was to have a safe space for men to be able to connect. And, you know, that kind of leads me into my next couple of questions for you. Um, you know, growing up, you know, in through your journey, how important do you think it is for men to have programs, uh, you know, to be able to have safe spaces to, you know, communicate like this and talk about their feelings and really find a way to heal? Uh, and then the second question that I have is, um, 
Do you think that it's time for every major city across Turtle Island to have a safe space for Indigenous people to pray um, with inside the city limits, uh, not outside in, in, in the on our land, but right inside of our cities where we can have sweats and um, those thing, those type of things. And also even funerals and, and mm-hmm. kind of like a community center for people who can't make it out to, you know, to the reserves. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of people people that come from other places that have built a community where it would be nice to celebrate their life inside that city if there was a space for that. So two of those questions. Yeah, no, great, great questions. And and I appreciate that, Kurt. You know, I think the first one and, you know, about about men having those those spaces, I think that's been, you know, again, a Western practice that that's been imposed and adopted by a lot of Indigenous people and agencies is that a lot, if you look at all of the programs that are out there, you know, you know, probably 99% of them are kind of geared towards the mother and the child, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, you know, that's a Western worldview, right? So an Indigenous worldview is, you know, the family unit, the community, you know, the extended family, that's how you deal with, with, with uh, you know, any, any issues of trauma. And I'm going to quickly tell you a Wakotuan story that, that I seen on the news that made me cry and, and just blew me away. And I questioned my own ability to acknowledge Wakotuan. There's a story on the news in this northern community. I think it was Winnipeg. Um, there's these three or four boys, young Indian boys on the reserve, headed home. They got their skates around their shoulder. They just come from the lake. They're headed home um, after a day on the lake skating. A drunk driver comes by and hits them. You know, and this is a true story, and I've seen this on the news. Um, the next day, the news are in that community, and they're talking to this man who just lost his son the day before they got him on the news and obviously this man is distraught he's very emotional and he says this man says that man who ran over and killed my boy he's welcome to come sit in ceremony with us and he's welcome to come sit in ceremony with us because that's our way that's how we heal that's how we mourn that's how we move forward that's what Codwin and when I seen that story, I was blown away by this man. And I just thought, holy shit, would I be able to do that? And I still don't know the answer to that. But that's, you know, that's the, 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 the true impact of our, of our culture that it can have. And, and that man obviously had opportunities and teachings that allowed him to connect to his ceremony and culture that way. So we need to, you know do our best to erase those those perspectives or thoughts or 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 uh, stereotypes men don't cry what a bunch of horse shit eh you know i grew up being told that and, and you know that didn't serve me well at all um, yeah. i'm okay with crying now and when, yeah. we, when we sit in the ceremonies every weekend at every friday at the sweat lodge there's men in there that cry every single week and 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 we see the you know and and it happens because they know they cut. They, there's safety. There's respect. There's no judgment. You, you know how you how you are. That's how you're welcome. And that's what our that's what our 
that's what our ceremonies and cultures do, right? They create that safety. So we need to create more space for that to happen. And so to your point, to your point, Kurt, yes, we need spaces in the city where we can where we can light our smudge. Because often our elders say we get invited to go into these buildings, into these circles in the city, and they say, Oh, oh, but you can't light your smudge in here because we've got bylaws and 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 the elders say, Oh, so you invite me into your into your home, but I can't be myself. Mm. And so, you know, that you know, that sends a clear message, right? And and so yes, we do we do need a space for that. And Muskanawa is one of those, you know. Mm. You know, we had uh we had an elder call us, you know, a few weeks back and he says, We can't find any place to do our four days of mourning. We can't have we can't find any place to to do our 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 overnight morning ceremony, overnight and and morning ceremony for a lost one, and and so McConnell said, "Come here, come to our building. You can do it here," um, but we just happen to have a, a standalone building where we can, where where we have full control over it. The owners allow us to do that, but it's not ours. At any given moment, the owner could say, "Hey, what, what the hell are you doing? You got, you got, you got a dead body in there, and it's like, yeah. you know, that's yeah. how they would look at yeah. it. Where, where it's yeah. us. This is, yeah. this is a mourning, cultural, spiritual process, right? Yeah. Um, and so we need that. We need that. We Absolutely, we need that. So, so that people can, they can address the mourning and the trauma, and 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 sh- show our our young ones and little ones how how it should be done, how it has been done for millennium. So, we need places. You know, what our we have a you know a vision of an organization, and our vision is children, youth, and families thrive in a culturally responsive community, and we pride ourselves on not defining culture. Culture is defined by the individuals and the individual's choice. All we do is, like I said, we offer and we invite, you know. And and if somebody comes in, you know, before we we started, we were just Cree, right? Cree and Ojibwe, because that's who we are. Or sorry, Cree and Soto, because that's who we are. And and but what started happening is, you know, our Cree and our and, and our Soto families started coming and they're bringing their spouses and their spouses were, were Blackfoot, were Stony, you know, were, were Ojibwe, you know, were Métis, whatever, right? So we had to expand our, our circles. And, and so, you know, I remember sitting in the sweat lodge for years and the grandfathers would say, they're coming, they're coming. It's like, who's coming? And, and this one time, this one man came to us and he was from, from South, uh, from the bloods. And he says, I want to do a, I want to do uh, a an, an, a night lodge and this uh, Blackfoot night lodge, and we had no clue, right? Well, that's like we don't know nothing about that. He goes, "Well, these are these are the elders," and and we, he gave us the elders. I said, "All right, we'll connect to the elders," and and we connected to the elders down south, and and we said, "We have some families here that want your ceremony," and 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 I said, "We have a place where you can do it." He goes, "Okay," he goes, "I'll come." And, and then he says, but I like to sweat first before I do that ceremony, that all night ceremony. And he said, sure. He goes, do you have a place where we can sweat? And and was like, yeah, you can come to our, our Cree sweat lodge if that's okay with you. And he goes, absolutely. He goes, all right. 
And so anyway, me and my, my brother Patrick are getting the lodge ready and we go in and we, you know, we got, we got everything and then they start coming in and, and when you're doing it, you're just in your prayers. Right. And, and, and I remember just as we were about to close the door, I, I, I lifted my head and I looked up. And there was six Blackwood elders sitting in our tree, tree sweat lodge. And I thought, that's what the Musha meant by their coming. <laughs> and, and from that point on, they knew who we were and they were coming to check us out. And, mm-hmm. and that, because we were in their territory. And we're running, yeah. we've been running these Cree sweat lodges for over a decade. And so now they're coming to see, you know, yeah, the old man needed to lodge before the ceremony, but they're also coming to, to check us out. And I remember one elder that was sitting in there, he goes, I seen you at the powwows for years. He goes, I had no idea that you knew these songs in this way. And, and that's because we kind of, you know, out of respect, we just kind of, you know, kept to ourselves. You know, we didn't yeah. want to offend or, or disrespect anybody. So we'd go out onto private land, onto crown land and build our sweat lodge. And, you know, um, if we were on crown land every now and then, uh, Alberta Parks would come in with their bulldozer and knock it all down, just desecrate our ceremonial grounds. And that was that was kind of our life, right? We're still, we're still you know, it's not our territory. So we still got to find these spaces where we conduct our ceremonies. But we need more of them. We need more of them within the city and out on crown land. And so, yeah, totally. And if you look at it, like within uh, our cities, there's so many places for uh, non-indigenous peoples uh, to pray with with churches and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually, uh, I've been filming a lot of churches around, uh, you know, Turtle Island in our travels with music. And, you know, I'm doing a documentary on that because I I would really like to see uh, spaces in every major city for us to have, have a place to pray. And, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's wonderful that you, you have, have a, have a spot in. So where is your business located? Where's the building located? Well, it's, you know, we've got a great building in Sunridge, Sunridge uh, Mall area where we're just off uh, Barlow Trail. But unfortunately, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the pandemic has hit everybody hard, right? And, yeah. and yeah. we've got this 26,000 square feet and we literally got like two full-size teepees in there and the elders love it and they come and do ceremonies in there all the time. But the pandemic hit us and we lost some contracting and we got to move because we can't afford $480,000 a year. So we're having to to downsize like a lot of people. And, and so we're having to move. So now we're back in that space where we're negotiating with potential new building owners. Oh, the ability to say, hey, we, we need to smudge. We, you know, that that's kind of, uh, you know, uh, that's a game changer for us. If you can't let us smudge, we got to find someplace else. So that's where I, we're at right I, now. I've got a quick question about that because – as a housing outreach worker, <laughs> we uh, when we move people into places, landlords can't stop you from smudging in your personal residences now. So how does that work in businesses? Because there there was a court case saying that if they try to stop you from smudging, it's religious persecution. Like we use that as a house, as housing outreach workers to argue with with landlords about it because yeah. that court case was actually in the courts. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, Trent, that's, you know, that's one avenue of taking that, you know, you, you can take that hard nose battle attitude and go in there and fight, yeah, your, yeah. fight for your rights, or you could try to build relatives and, and, and educate yeah. and inform. Right. And, and so yeah. we want to be in a place where people want us, right. If, if, if I go in there with, you know, with guns a blazing, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, I might get my way, but then there's going to be those residual, you know, negative relationships and emotions that you don't want to surround our ceremonies, right? Yeah. So, so we go in there with a with a softer approach, one where we educate and inform them about. You know, we picked the we picked the sage right up here on Nose Hill. It's it's local to here. The sweet grass is all around here. This is what we're burning, and we show them right, and and we talk to them a little bit, and we share parallels. That's what they're doing in all these churches. They're doing they're doing yeah. their own smudging. We're just this is just an indigenous one. And the, the reality is that's been this has been going on here for thousands of years, you know, yeah. and, and now here we are asking permission to keep doing it. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, yeah. it's a it's a challenge. It's a struggle, but it's uh, it's it's a real battle. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, as an organization, you know, we're, we're exploring ownership. Right. We're we're wanting to go yeah. down that route where if we own the building, then we don't have you to do answer whatever to anyone. Yeah. So when is the next big round dance? Our next big round dance is what's the Saturday? I don't have my phone here, do I? Oh, yeah, but it's I don't want to mess with the calendar. Uh, February, the third week in February. Is that the 24th or the 25th? I'm not sure exactly. Where's your calendar? I want because I I want to get a shout out to that because I just had a round dance committee meeting just before I got on here. Where's my calendar? February. Okay, okay, February. So I'm in November, December, January. Third week in February. Saturday is the 25th. 25th. Saturday, February. 25th. Oh, no, third is the 18th. Sorry. No, no, no. It's the 25th. Oh, it's, it's the 25th. 25th. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it's, it, we're at the Genesis Center, and, and so the poster should be going out soon. And, again, that's, you know, that's one of our ceremonies, right? And, I'll and, be there. I'll be there set up with my 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 goods, so you better come grab some uh, quills for your honey <laughs> and your daughter. <laughs> we're we're gonna have like over two thousand people there, and and yeah. it's gonna be an awesome event, and and it's you know it's connecting with old friends and making new friends, building relatives, and so a shout out to the Muscanaway Round Dance, uh, February twenty fifth at the Genesis Center. Oh yeah, you know the Calgary. last time I was there was before COVID. Yep. So like I'm so looking forward to being there. Uh and yeah, I'll I'll definitely be set up with my quills and just having a ball over there. Awesome. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great to see that you're doing that still. It's one of the best ones in Calgary. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate this opportunity, guys. I, you know, I said, yeah. to you, I said, you know, maybe we'll chat for about 30 minutes, but we're over an hour here. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess we can, well, we could keep going, but no, this is great. Everything that you shared with us was awesome. Yeah. It was more than what we expected. Yeah, for definitely sure. Definitely for sure. Um, you definitely are a deadly uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I always wanted to be called a deadly uncle. Oh, <laughs> so we'll, you'll be getting a, a deadly uncle hat uh, as as part of our gifts to all of our men here. And, uh, you know, like we said, it was it was it was awesome to have you on 
on a personal level and on a professional level because we know you personally, but we learned so much with the audience about your life and who you are as a man. And, you know, even the story between you and your father and, you know, you coming back to him and, and going through the whole abuse system and stuff like that. It really, a lot of men are going to resonate with this episode. I think it's one of our best so far. Mm-hmm. And so thank you so and much. shout out to your dad. I miss your dad a lot. Nanaskamon, my brothers. Okay. Hi, hi, brother. Take care. Talk to you again soon. Okay, bye. You're listening to the Deadly Uncle Podcast. A safe space for Deadly Uncle Conversations.